So let's uh, read John chapter 4. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, it, in fact, it was not John, Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. It would have been a lot hotter than this. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well's deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, said the woman, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. There's a few podcasts that I enjoy listening to, and one of my favourite ones was talking about the power of brands. The power that brands have to give you an identity. The, the lady who was writing an article in a publication called The Atlantic was saying, and brands, they can act like religions. She says, uh, I know more people that belong to uh, and worship at the temple of Peloton, the cycling fitness app and craze, than who go to church. Brands have a power because they allow us to buy into an identity that we long for. There's a, a load of reasons why companies spend millions, if not billions of pounds every year 
on advertising. Not only do they do that because it's so powerful, but they also they spend millions of pounds with consumer and sociologists looking at what makes people tick. Brands have a power because advertising is significant. They also tap into a longing of every human heart to, to have an identity. If we buy that item, then we belong to that community and then we can be the people we want to be. If we wear that label, if we go to that place, if we cross that paywall, whatever it is, then people would hold us in high esteem. And you can choose your brand. I'm not going to look at anybody. I will shut my eyes. You can say, I'm someone who loves a Costa coffee. I'm someone who loves a cruise. I'm someone who has white uh, earbuds. It's important that you know that. I don't even need to mention Apple to know that I'm talking about Apple. No, I prefer Adidas. I'm someone who's paid the paywall to join Wisley Gardens like me. No, I'm someone who shops at Waitrose. All of us love the power of brands because it enables us to just to piece together a little bit of our identity of who we are. You buy a product and it deals with a little bit of the loneliness in the human heart. It helps us to avoid, to some degree, thinking about the future when we get out our credit card and we click on Amazon once again. If we just have that item, I can control that purchase, even if I have to take it back or send it back. And I know it will go into landfill and it will be turned into pulp if I don't want it. But it helps me to feel better. And I'd love to know the stats of how many people bought stuff during the pandemic just to feel a little bit of control. We crave to understand ourselves. We long to know who we are, like that brilliant BBC TV program. Who are you? Who do you think you are? And you go back and track your identity and family tree. We want to know who we are, and we're on a cosmic quest, as it were, to find out who we are. And we long to belong because in our heart of hearts, we're all lonely. And in our honest moments, we are prepared to admit it. We're on a quest not to uh, Mordor to destroy a ring or Mount Doom. We're on a quest to find out who we are, a journey to search for meaning and identity and belonging at a very personal level. And it's not just brands that have that power, okay? There are people in our lives, whether it be a peer group at school, if you're at school, there is someone who is the alpha dog, someone whose opinion counts in your mind and heart more than anybody else. And it's not just at high school or school or university, adults have it just the same. There is someone in your Facebook group. There is one person in your WhatsApp community. When you put something out, you look with bated breath to see how they will respond. Will they approve of you? Will they disapprove? Will they give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down? And it just speaks to this longing we have, like a jigsaw puzzle, to buy the right products, to accrue the right identity, because I, as much as you, long to know who we truly are. We're all, to quote the Bible from this passage, thirsty. Thirsty for belonging, thirsty for identity. And as we thought last week, we're thirsty for meaning too. I want to look at this very personal interaction with Jesus and a lady who's thirsty, who's representative of us all. It's really a, a thirst for identity that we all have. Turn with uh, 
me back to John 4 or click with me to John 4 or get it on your screen or even open your Bible. There's a thought on <laughs> printed page. In John 4, we meet this lady. She is incredibly vulnerable and she is thirsty. Look at verse 9 with me. She kind of says, what are you talking to me for? She didn't sound like Robert De Niro, but perhaps she asked a similar question. Why are you talking to me? You shouldn't be talking to me. That's what the lady's saying in verse 9. She's a thirsty woman who's working hard doing the backbreaking work of pulling water up a vertically deep shaft in the ground. It's not just verse 9, the lady who's surprised. If you look down to verse 28, 27, excuse me, it's the disciples who are surprised. Jesus, why are you talking to a lady such as her? We learn early in the passage that she is a uh, non-Jewish lady. She's someone who is an outcast. She's someone who is an outsider. And everybody is shocked and surprised. And we should be asking why. They're shocked and surprised because she's, Jesus is deliberately crossing boundaries. That's what Jesus does. Every human construct, Jesus is prepared to cross. Cultural, gender, moral. Jesus is prepared to cross everyone. What do I mean? Look at verse 7. The Bible tells us that she's not just a lady. She's a Samaritan woman. And Samaritans and Jews, well, they don't mix. They've got previous. They've got beef. And it goes back a long way. And it's about who worships God on what mountain. Who's got it right? And they disagreed. So rather than being friends, they're enemies. The second reason, well, it's a gender one. She's a woman and he's a man. Women would have terribly low status, whether you look in Jewish cultures, Roman cultures, Greek cultures. Women were second-class citizens, and we look back on that and rightly see that's completely wrong. Thirdly, she's doing this hard work of drawing water. Did you notice it says the sixth hour? That's not. That's in an hour's time. That's midday when the sun is even hotter. Crazy crazy hot and she's doing this hard work of drawing water and Jesus goes to this poor woman and says will you give me a drink now why is she doing it at that part of the day because she's avoiding people who have alienated her she's avoiding people who look at her and treat her as a piece of muck she's avoiding the people the women who would come either early in the day or when the sun has gone down late in the day that's when it's a sensible time to do hard work when it's not in the heat the day but look at verse six it says she's coming when the sun is at its highest the only reason for that is because she wants to be alone she doesn't want to be accused anymore she doesn't want to be looked down on or looked through or looked over or looked past anymore she wants to be alone because she has a past so she is a moral outcast why because as we learn later on in verse 16 and following she has had multiple husbands She's a serial marriage addict, you could say. And she's living with a man this time who's not even her husband, and she's already had five of those. So all these boundaries that she has that makes her an outcast, Jesus, like Superman, breaks through and he crosses. Look at verse 7. We have a woman who's meeting Jesus, and she was an outsider of every single inner ring that it was possible to make. 
She's a gender outsider. She's a moral outsider. She's a religious outsider. She's a racial outsider. She's an outlaw, you could say. And that's why she's working hard by herself, hoping that no one else will come at the heat of the day. She's not looking for Jesus. She's not looking for a relationship with God. But did you notice verses eight and nine, how tenderly Jesus pursues her? He doesn't come and say, here's a record. I'm going to condemn you. Jesus comes with compassion and with tenderness. And word by word, sentence by sentence, minute by minute, Jesus is drawing her from her spiritual indifference towards spiritual reality that can only be found in him. Look down to verse 10. Jesus has the audacity to say something in verse 10 that we all need to hear. It's, it's shock value. He says, I have something that every soul needs. As much as water in the human heart and human body, but there's a greater longing that you need that every soul is looking for. And there's this imagery, I hope you notice, verses 9 through 16 about living water. Why is Jesus obsessed with water? What's he trying to teach? Is it because he's in a desert environment and water is more valuable in that kind of context? If you went to Cairo, it would be more expensive than it would be, let's say, in Corfu or in Chesington. No, Jesus is using the image of water very purposefully, very intentionally, and it crosses every age and every century. We say, if I need a drink, I just go to the tap. If I need a drink and I'm out, I go and buy one. I put my hand in a pocket. Jesus is saying it's not physical thirst that is your greatest need. It points to your spiritual thirst, that spiritual longing that drink cannot quench, whether it's Guinness whether it's water, whether it's red wine, whatever your tipple may be, there is something that will not quench the thirst of your heart if it comes from a bottle. We all long for identity. We all long to be known and loved. We long to understand where we fit in, our big purpose to life. And Jesus says it cannot be found in a well and it cannot be found in a bottle, but it can be found only in him. And so he meets the lady in her abundant need that we all have. And he says, I can give you a purpose, verse 14, 15, and 16. I can give you a love. I can give you a peace. I can give you a hope. I can give you an understanding of beauty. And you will be seen as beautiful to me permanently from a spring of living water that only I can give to you. And it will well up within you, up bringing joy and peace and happiness up into eternal life. That's where the passage goes if you look down at verse 15 with me. He keeps saying, I can offer you living water, living water. It's like a spring that uh, you cannot quench. It will spring up from within you like Evian, and it'll be a, an eternal source of joy and of life. And you can imagine the lady thinking, I don't understand what you're saying. I don't want living water. I just want to be the first on my street to have running water. That would make my life a lot easier. I've got to come here every day and put my clay pot down. It's heavy. I need to get all the water that my family needs for cooking, for bathing, for drinking. And it's hard work. And now you are saying to me, verse 7, can you get me a drink as well? You keep talking, Jesus, about spiritual thirst. That's not my problem. Physical thirst is my problem, says the lady. And then it looks like verse 15 and 16, Jesus changed the subject. Did you notice that? Is that what he's doing? Jesus says, 
Now go get your husband. Go and get your husband, says Jesus. Having just spoken about living water, it looks as if he changes tact altogether. Now, why would he do that? Is he changing the subject? No, he's not. No, he's not. She's saying, I'm not spiritually thirsty. That's not my problem. Jesus says, verse 16, oh, yeah, go and get your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. The guy I'm living with is not my husband. I've had five of them already. And you can imagine Jesus saying behind these words, no, but that is your core issue. You're seeking to quench the thirst of your heart, not your taste buds in your mouth, through men. Men have been uh, running and ruining your life for years. It's not just one man who's been doing the damage, it's men. They've been in control. And I want you to know that you think that your greatest need is physical thirst, but it's not, says Jesus, it's spiritual thirst. And you have a deep thirst and a deep need for God in your life. And you are trying to quench that thirst through getting approval and love and acceptance and significance from men. And men will always let you down. Do not say amen, ladies. You have that deep desire for closure. You have that deep desire for significance. You just don't see the significance of it in your life. Physical thirst is not your biggest need. It's spiritual, says Jesus. You are deeply thirsty. And it's not just women who are spiritually thirsty. We can think that from John 4, and that's not true. But ladies, if you're drinking from the, the, the well, as it were, of male relationships and sex for approval, they will always let you down. Maybe you're listening to us and you're thinking, well, hang on. I'm a secular person. I don't believe that God even exists. I don't think there even is a God. Just as we were looking like that last week in Ecclesiastes, I'm trying to live life without God. I'm trying to live life under the sun as if God does not exist. And you might think, oh, Christians, well, it's nice for you to go to church. Nice for you to meet outside. Um, it's great that the sun's out, that you're not getting rained upon. No one's raining on your parade. It's great that you have a faith that can help you through the tough stuff of life. And when a secular person says that, it's as if they don't have faith. But that's not true. Everyone has saving faith. Everyone is placing their hearts, hopes in something or someone. And this lady was hoping from John 4 that male relationships and men and, and intimacy would quench her deep heart's desire. And Jesus Christ says, no, no, you've got saving faith, but it's not working and it never will. All you need to do is transfer your saving faith from men who will let you down to me, the son of God, who will give you and provide in your heart the source of living water. I alone can quench your deepest thirst. You just need to transfer your location for saving faith. It might be relationships. It might be work. I'm going to get approval through my work. That's my identity. That's who I am. It might be raising the best family you can. And that's where you gain your source of control and significance until they leave. It's not just women, it's men. It's not just men and relationships or sex. It could be your career. It could be your appearance. It could be your friends. I just want to get into a certain friendship group. I just want to get a certain sense of security and control in my life. 
It could be money. It could be wealth. It could be status. There are so many things and places we go for, so many badges we try and accrue in our life, in my life, because we think they will hold the weight of our lives and they won't. You're never going to find this living water, says Jesus, unless you see and understand where you're drinking from now. And the lady was drinking from the empty cistern, using the words of Isaiah or Jeremiah, rather, of male relationships. He says, you stuck the bucket of your soul down there. You've lowered it down, not just in the noonday sun, but every day of your life since you've been an adult and they will always let you down. Jesus says, I know what it is for you. Go and get your husband. And you can imagine her computing, which one? But that's not the end of the story. It's the thirst we all have, men and women alike, young and old alike. And we seek to quench our thirst in a whole host of different wells. Longing for approval and acceptance and significance. And Jesus says, relationships never work. But there is, as we are tracking through this series, there is a better story that Jesus points to as the passage continues. Do you see that Jesus approaches the lady without condemnation? Very easy for Jesus just to say, here's your rap sheet. This is what you've done. But he doesn't. He's convicting her kindly with his words. He doesn't drive her away. He pursues her with his heart. Having shown her where her hope lies, finally, verse 14, he says, this is what you've been longing for all your life. Look at verse 14. He says, I am he. I alone can offer you living water. And then down in verse 23, there's a very interesting phrase. Look down with me. The lady tries to put a bit of a smoke machine. Jesus is getting too close to her with his words and with his heart. And so he says, I want to talk to you about worship, says the lady, trying to throw Jesus off the scent. And Jesus is having absolutely none of it. But he uses the issue of worship to uh, speak more truth into our heart. Verse 23, look down, it says, the hour is coming and now is here. I, I don't want to talk to you about mountains. Where's the right place to worship? I don't want to talk to you about temples, but you will need a temple to worship me. And this is a very cryptic phrase from the Gospel of John, verse 23. The hour is coming and now is. Now, what does that mean? If you're new to the Bible, that, that phrase, the hour, is very, very important in the Gospel of John and in the whole Bible. If you read the Gospel of John from beginning to end, if you looked at these chapters, chapter 2, 3, 5, 12, 16, and 17, you will see that whenever Jesus uses this phrase to talk about the hour, it's the hour of his appointed death. Jesus does not die accidentally. He dies on purpose for the sins of the world. And Jesus speaks into this lady's great need. And he teaches her and us how we can find identity that will satisfy and will last on into eternity only through him. This is 1926. There's lots going on here. We don't have time to look into it in detail, but this is what Jesus is explaining. He says, we're all built to worship. You do need a temple to worship, but I'm not going to get into which mountain you're to worship me on because I'm the temple, says Jesus. You need a place to sacrifice. You need a place for there to be an offering because there must be forgiveness of sins. There's a great barrier that's been created by our rebellion, says Jesus. 
Humanity has turned their backs on God and replaced the source of living water with something else. So you need a place to worship me. You need a sacrifice that will uh, represent your sin and take the burden of your sin upon its shoulders. Otherwise, that living water cannot come to anybody. And he, in this intimate account with Jesus, speaking one-to-one with a lady whose name we don't even know, the woman would never have found the source of living water if Jesus wasn't thirsty. What about that? Verse 7. If Jesus wasn't fully God and fully man, if he wasn't thirsty, then this lady would never have been sought out at the hottest part of the day. She would never be pursued with cords of love that can't be broken. Jesus says, verse 7, I'm thirsty. Would you please do the hard work of quenching my physical thirst? But if you look through John's gospel, this is not the last time Jesus says those words. I'm thirsty. He says it again a few chapters later when he's dying for the sins of the world on the cross. There you read again exactly the same words. Jesus says, I thirst. It's on the cross. He's, this is ours. Ours come to die for the sins of the world. It's the temple of God where we can worship God, but only after he's paid for our sins and died in our place. It was a real thirst that Jesus experienced. I mean, the sun, even now we're feeling it. It's not 80 degrees of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but it's kind of warm. And there's some of us have got umbrellas up and some of us have got shades on. Some of us are burning, we're fair skinned. Some of us are getting tanned and we're enjoying it. But the, the sun in the sky can quench our thirst and we dry out. So we want some water or coffee or something else to quench our thirst, right? It can uh, dry our lips. It can dry out our skin. So we need some moisturizer. On the cross, Jesus Christ did not experience physical thirst alone. He felt the full force of a million suns, 10 million suns beating down upon him. The force of 10 million suns right down upon him. And he died of thirst, you could say. Physical thirst, yes, but more than that. On the cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 22, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His relationship with his father was torn in two for the first time in all of eternity. But if you continue in that famous psalm that's found in the middle of the Bible, Psalm 22, Jesus speaks of his thirst once again. He says, I'm poured out like water. My strength is dried up. This is what the Bible teaches. This is the greatest story ever told because it's true. The hour has come. Jesus died in our place. And on the cross, Jesus was thirsty. And he was thirsty for relationship, knowing and enjoying the face of God. That's what we're made for. That's the only place where we can find our source of meaning and hope and approval and love and acceptance before the face of God. And Jesus died thirsty so that we could have the source of living water in our hearts. He died in torment and brokenness, carrying our sin upon his shoulders so that we can enjoy the cool water, so to speak, of the favor of God. Well, how do you know if you've received that? Because I would like some water today. How do you know if you've received it? Well, look at the lady. Here's a lady. Men have just caused brokenness and damage. They've crushed her spirit. They've broken our hearts. They've damaged her future. And yet she meets in Jesus, the man who can truly hold her heart safely in his hands and will never, ever break it. She meets the only man who will ever truly know her and love her. 
Jesus alone knows the depths of her heart and yet loves her the same. And so she leaves her expensive water jar, verse 28, and she runs off to meet the very people who have alienated her. The people from the town who have shunned her. She doesn't care what anyone thinks anymore. And she says these words, come and meet the man who's told me everything I've ever done. She has a completely new identity because of Jesus. What they think of her does not matter anymore because what Jesus thinks of her matters the most. Christian friends, on a warm morning, how many of you have tasted this living water? How many of you have experienced this well, welling up in your heart? You've become a Christian. But actually, if we were to have a private conversation, you could be honest enough to say, but actually I'm going outside, I'm going to other places to quench my thirst just that bit more. I mean, Jesus... Jesus helps me theoretically. He helps me in my heart. But there's lots of other places I'm drinking from as well. You're going and getting purpose and identity and love from all sorts of other things. That's the reason why you're so up and down. Because Jesus is not the spring of living water in your heart anymore. Long Christian friend. Notice that God works most powerfully in the Bible through people who are powerless. Here is this lady, she has nothing, no friends, no future, no resources that we're told of. But Jesus works most powerfully in the lives of messed up, broken people like me and like her and like you too. Foolish people who make mistakes in their lives. Foolish people who turn their back on him and go elsewhere and yet he pursues them in his grace and mercy. Don't think that you're too messed up to come to Jesus. Jesus says, verse 14, do you notice, key word, the water I give you. If anyone has the water that I give you. In other words, it's a gift. The gift that Jesus is and offers is a gift that wisdom cannot find, that power cannot get, that money cannot buy, that your merit cannot procure from God by your own effort. It's a gift. And Jesus gave it willingly to the lady 2,000 years ago, and he offers it to you this morning as well. It means actually asking Jesus to come into the center of your life, to quench the thirst of your heart. And if you take Jesus into the center of your life and move your saving faith from wherever it is now to Jesus, then you actually have it, and it will be like a spring of living water. All you need to say are these few words from verse 15. If you're not a Christian this morning, you can become a Christian right now by saying this, verse 15, give me this water. And you say it as a prayer. And Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, will come into your heart and you'll be reconciled with your Father in heaven. What a lovely morning to begin a new life with him today would be.